This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! So most fungi live most of their lives as a branching, fusing networks of tubular cells known as mycelium. And mycelium is analogous to the tree on which the apples grow. And you imagine how little we'd know about this apple tree if all we saw of it were the apples that push their way through the ground once a year uh, and the rest was underground. So fungi live most of their lives concealed from view. Um, and mycelium is their main way of life. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant for BBC Science Focus magazine. The fungal kingdom is vast and yet much of it remains unknown to us. It's estimated that only about 6% of all fungal species have so far been described. But if fungi are all around us, why do we only know the names of a few? We might use yeast in baking, mushrooms in our cooking, or have taken penicillin, but biologist Merlin Sheldrake says there is much more wonder to be found among our fungal friends. His new book, Entangled Life, reveals the complexity of the fungal world. In it, he describes the fungal networks that connect trees and plants in something called the wood wide web, and explains how fungi were crucial to the creation of the world we see around us today. Editorial assistant Amy Barrett spoke to Merlin about this strange and wondrous life form. At the moment, I'm talking about the book all the time. So I'm not actually doing active research at the moment because I'm, um, I'm busy on the book promotion circuit. 
Mm. When did the book come out? The book came out on uh, the 3rd in England, but it came out in May in the States. Mm, right. And what's, it, what's the reception been like so far? It's been very encouraging. People seem to have an appetite for, um, for the subject, which is, which is gratifying and, and wasn't something that I'd expected. Hmm. Because the research into, um, into fungi is it's one of the most under-researched areas. Have I got that right? Yeah, we know very little about them, relatively speaking. I mean, we still um, know a decent amount and there are plenty of fungal biologists. And, but compared to, say, our knowledge of plants or animals... Uh, we we know, we know very little. And why do you think that is? I think there are a few reasons. One is technological. It's only in the last few decades that technologies like DNA sequencing have been invented and, and have become uh, widely applicable. And these technologies grant us access to, to fungal lives in a way we simply didn't have before. So we can grind up the DNA in a teaspoon of soil and we can work out who's there. Uh, which fungi are there? We can describe communities in different places. We can uh, we can look at what those communities are doing, uh, and this means that um, that the subject of fungi is just opened to inquiry in, in a different way. Then there's other reasons too. I think taxonomically, um, there's been a, an entrenched bias against fungi because uh, they were considered to be plants until the 60s when they won their independence, taxonom- taxonomically speaking, and so. When you wanted to study fungi in the past, there wasn't a department of fungal sciences at university. You'd have to study it uh, in the plant sciences department. So it was occupying some dusty wing of of plant sciences rather than being (laughs) its own study. So I think that's meant that, um, no, that's restricted uh, funds and it's restricted students and and, uh, and general expertise. Um, So there's there's a few other possible reasons as well, but those are the main ones, I think. So really, as soon as, as recently as, as the 60s, that we didn't actually class them different to plants? Well, they were considered fungi, but, but fungi themselves were considered to be a type of plant. So um, it fell broadly under the um, umbrella of botany. And so what actually makes that incorrect? What is it about them that means that they're neither plant nor animal? So when you look at the evolutionary tree so the the the, um, the line of descent of which fungi are a part they make up their own kingdom of life uh, so it's broad and busy a category as animal and plant but uh, a distinct kingdom and they're unlike plants in the sense that they don't photosynthesize um, so photosynthesis being this this uh, metabolic miracle where plants are able to eat light and carbon dioxide from the air but um so they have to do what animals do, which is to find food in the world and digest it um, and, and absorb it. So, um, but they're somewhat more like plants than animals because most of them live um, in a sessile way. So they live embedded in their environments and have to grow places. They can't grow places in the same way that animals can with their twitchy, muscular bodies. Mm. And how old are fungi as a kingdom? At the moment, the best estimates are just over a billion years. Uh, but, wow. but that's keeps changing you know depending on um new fossil evidence comes to light um a new analysis of uh, the genetics comes to light so there's a there's a finding from 2.4 billion years ago of of in, in lava of um fossil organisms that look just like fungi they have this same branched mycelial structure and so 
this is a contentious finding because it would suggest that fungi had arisen um, many times earlier than what we currently think. But whether they are actual fungi or just a different kind of mycelial organism uh, is, is in dispute. So we're not sure. But at least a billion. That word mycelial, what does that mean? Yeah, so when we think of fungi, most people think of mushrooms, which are mm-hmm. the just the fruits uh, of fungi. So most fungi live most of their lives as uh, branching, fusing networks of tubular cells known as mycelium. And mycelium is analogous to the tree on which the apples grow. And you imagine how little we'd know about this apple tree if all we saw of it were the apples that push their way through <laughs> the ground once a year uh, and the rest was underground. So fungi live most of their lives concealed from view um, and mycelium is their main way of life so do all species produce mushrooms no very few do uh, relatively speaking within the, the fungal kingdom is enormously diverse there's um, the best estimates are about 2.2 to 3.8 million species of which we've mm-hmm. described only about um, six six to eight percent of them so we know um, only that much about the fungal kingdom, so we think. And so of those um, 3.8, 2.2 to 3.8 million, only about 20 to 30,000 produce mushrooms. Uh, so mushroom-forming fungi are in the, in the great minority. Mm. And so if I'm out and I see a mushroom growing, that's a very small portion of the fungi, right? So how, how far could the mycelial network be stretched underneath that mushroom that I'm seeing? Yes, yeah, so the mycelium... Um, is like like trees, which can vary enormously from sort of shrubby small trees to giant uh, redwoods, sequoias. Uh, mycelium too varies enormously. You have some fungi that form mycelium, which um, lives as ephemeral puffs on specks of house dust and doesn't <laughs> range very far. And uh, you have mycelial networks, which are some of the largest organisms in the world. There's one in Oregon that sprawls across 10 square kilometers and is somewhere between two and 8,000 years old. So mm. there's enormous diversity of, of lifestyle. And underneath us, what are the fungi actually doing? All sorts of things. So one of the big uh, ecological roles that fungi play is as decomposers. So if fungi weren't decomposing uh, the dead Um, bodies of animals and plants that would be piled kilometers deep uh, in bodies. So a lot of what fungi do in their decompositional role uh, is something we don't notice because we live in the space that decomposition lives behind. Um, We we see decomposition um, only by the emptiness which remains. And so it's easy for us to take it for granted. But in fact, this decomposition, this fungal decomposition of wood and other um, rotting matter is, is a very significant part of the biogeochemical cycles that, um, that, that swarm around the planet. So um, other worlds they play, they have symbiotic relationships with plants. So m- almost all plants depend on uh, symbiotic fungi that live in their roots and which lace out into the soil and which uh, supply the plant with nutrients like um, minerals, like nitrogen or phosphorus and water, and also protect the plant from disease. And the plant, in exchange, feeds the fungi with energy-containing compounds that it's made in photosynthesis, Um, so sugars or lipids, for example. And this relationship is uh, very ancient and is 
um, really lies at the root of all recognizable life on land because the ancestors of plants uh, would not have made it out of the water were it not for these alliances, these ancient alliances with their fungal partners. So that's another major role that these uh, fungi underground uh, will, be, will be playing. So they wouldn't have made it out of the water because they wouldn't have been able to take these nutrients from the soil themselves, if I got that right? Yeah, so the ancestors of plants would have been that freshwater algae, um, sort of puddles of photosynthetic tissue used to being um, stewing in a nutrient broth, a, a watery nutrient broth, which would have been their, their home. And as they washed up onto these soggy shores of lakes and rivers, they faced a new type of challenge. There was light and carbon dioxide in abundance, but to scavenge their nutrition from the ground was something they'd never have to do before. And fungi are masters at this kind of scavenging. And so at this point, um, the fungi and the algae sort of struck up a relationship and the fungi would have behaved like the root system of these early plants. And in fact, plants didn't evolve roots for another 50 million years. So fungi behaved as plants' root systems for 50 million years until plants could evolve their own. And you've mentioned that you found, uh, or that it's been found that there was like a fungi-like creature in the lava. Um, Is it that fungi can live in places where no no other organism could survive? Yes, so you have fungi living in in extreme environments, for sure. And um, there are other organisms that also live in extreme environments. There are various types of um, bacteria or archaea, which are also very extremophilic. but fungi can live in, in unusual places in some ways because they form a lichens, which are a, a symbiotic organism made up of a fungal partner or several fungal partners and a photosynthetic partner or, or several photosynthetic partners. And lichens, you'll have seen them, those tufty, scaly uh, organisms that coast fence posts and roofs and gravestones mm-hmm. and, and walls and tree trunks. And these um, lichens can live in extremely inhospitable places because the fungus and the photosynthetic partners, they form a kind of micro-ecosystem, a summary of life on Earth with the fungus doing this digesting um, and the photosynthetic organism doing the photosynthesis. And together they um, make a little biosphere and can survive in... um, in the, in the most unexpected places. So when a volcano throws up a new island in the Pacific Ocean, lichens are some of the first things to move in, and they can make a life on this bare, solid rock. Uh, the fungus can digest minerals from the rock, um, and the, uh, the photosynthetic partner can make energy from sunlight. And so um, you would find lichens on these very newly exposed surfaces. You'd also find them uh, prospering as crusts on the scorched ground of most deserts. Uh, where they stabilise the surface of deserts. So lichens are very fascinating creatures with um, very extreme tastes. And do you find any fungi in the sea? You do. Yes, you find um, relatively little is known about marine fungi, but there are um, fungi found in samples of sulphurous sediment taken from um, far below the surface of the ocean. And there are fungi that weave their way through coral reefs and live... um, on the bodies of uh, marine um, crustaceans, amongst other places. That's amazing. And for you personally, what is it like to be 
a researcher in 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 looking at these these fungi do you get to go and see them all over the place or, or do you find that you're mostly confined to a lab so when i was doing um, a lot of my work in Panama, in tropical forests in Panama, I was studying these relationships between plants and their symbiotic root fungi, or mycorrhizal fungi as they're known. And I would be in the forest a lot. I would be taking samples in the forest. I had also experiments in greenhouses growing plants with different types of fungus and seeing what happened to them. Um, and then I was also be in the lab dealing with these samples. Um, but then for writing the book, when I was writing the book, I, I traveled much more widely and I went to visit lots of different people studying fungi from all sorts of points of view. Um, and from in those in the excursions, I, um, I had a much broader range of experience, including, for example, truffle hunting in Italy with some mm. uh, very secretive truffle hunters who search for the, the very prized and elusive white truffle, which has never been cultivated and so it has to be found in the wild. What is different about truffles? What, what makes them so desirable? So in some senses because the truffles have made themselves desirable because truffles are the underground fruiting body of certain types of uh, fungi, of root fungi, mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, but underground these truffles, these fruiting bodies, they're unavailable to wind currents that might spread their spores if they're a more conventional mushroom um, and they are invisible um, to the eyes of animals. And so they have to, to spread their spores. They produce these very amazing aromas which can filter through the damp soil, travel through the air in the forest, and catch the attention of an animal who will then go out of its way to find the truffle, dig it up, and eat it, and then carry <laughs> its spores away and deposit them in its feces in some other place. So truffles have made themselves uh, attractive because their lives depend on it. And so you can think of these truffle aromas really as, a, as an evolutionary portrait in scent of animal fascination. And, uh, and humans are part of that animal fascination, like shrews, squirrels, pigs, dogs, mice, everything else that eat truffles, we do too. And um, so these, some of these truffles, like the white truffle, have particularly prized flavors. And so humans um, dig them up have whole industries built around this. They have to be uh, served on a plate within about 48 hours of picking, finding them in the ground because their aroma is um, made by a living process. So you can't dry a truffle. Mm. So humans have developed special packing, chilled transportation systems, ways of rushing them through customs, um, getting them onto plates in other countries, um, all within 48 um, hours or so. So we, we do a lot to disperse these organisms. In fact, we urgently disperse these organisms because their flavours mm -hmm. are so attractive to us. Why is it that they can't be cultivated then? Some of them can. Um, some types of the, the tuber melanosporum or the perigord black truffle, this can be cultivated to some degree, um, with some degree of success. The white truffle is very hard because we don't understand enough about how it forms relationships with its host trees. So you can get a host tree to, um, to have this mycelium of this white truffle growing on its roots. Um, but we don't know, we, when we plant that out in, um, in a natural environment, then it just won't fruit. So we don't understand mm -hmm. what it is that this symbiosis needs in order to fruit. There are too many variables. We haven't um, got this in hand yet. So 
there are a number of, and it's mostly because we don't understand the sex life of these truffles. You know, it's all about these different relationships, the truffle relationship with the tree, the truffle's relationship with other truffle um, of the opposite mating type. Um, so there's a, a cascade of relationships that, that humans are, are struggling to understand. <laughs> and aside from the truffle, obviously we know of yeast, um, but are there any other fungal species that we interact with on a daily basis? Yeast are a big one. Uh, we have yeasts you know, coating our body. We have yeast living inside us. Um, they're lining our orifices. Our yeasts play a major role in human culture, um, baking and brewing being major examples. Um, so, yeah, so yeasts are often um, underrated uh, agent in uh, human life and the history of civilization. Um, but apart from that, the every time you interact with a plant, by the time you eat it, you plant one, you um, buy one, there are fungi involved in that plant's life uh, from the beginning um, until the moment that you eat it. Most plants have fungi living in their leaves and in their shoots as well as in their roots. And um, so plant life is also fungal life. And um, of course, people eat um, fungi for food, mushrooms. Um, but then in the world of drugs, fungi play an enormously important role. So penicillin is a very famous story where a mold, um, as part of its antibacterial defense system, produced this compound penicillin, which humans were able to repurpose and use to defend ourselves also from bacteria. Uh, but there are others besides. There's cyclosporin, which is a immunosuppressant drug which makes organ plant transplants possible. And there's mm. statins, the cholesterol-lowering statins. Um, Taxol, the blockbuster anti-cancer drug. Acetocybin, the psychedelic recently found to uh, alleviate anxiety uh, and depression. Um, so there's a very long list of, um, of, of fungal or drugs derived from fungi which really um, play a major role in society. But there are, of course, fungi that are dangerous to, to us and animals. Yeah, there are some poisonous fungi, um, which means when you're foraging for fungi, if you are foraging for fungi, then you need to be very sure that what you're picking is what, what you think it is. Um, but there are, I mean, fungi have a reputation for being uh, poisonous, which is perhaps um, disproportionate to the number of poisonous species that there are. Um, but it is a very, you know, foraging for mushrooms, you, you do have to uh, make sure that you know um, positively what you're eating. It's called a positive identification. Rather than knowing that it's not that, that it's not that, you have to know that it is this. Mm. Um, so, but yes, yeah, so, so po poisons, is a, poisons is another thing that they do. And on foraging, what, what's different about the ones that we would go out and forage than the one that I might buy in the supermarket? So on the whole, supermarket mushrooms are a species called Agaricus bisporus. And uh, cremony mushrooms, the sort of supermarket button mushrooms and portobello mushrooms, they're all the same species of mushroom, just at different life stages. So it's a clever racket uh, that has been mm. <laughs> developed to pass these off as actually different mushrooms when they're just uh, the same species at different points in its life cycle. So these mushrooms are some of the less nutritious and medicinal mushrooms around, but they're just very easy to grow. So they were some of the first that people were able to cultivate uh, on a large scale. Um, but there are many other types of mushroom which 
are also cultivatable, which you can buy in different um, in shops to in growing number of um, supermarkets like shiitake, uh, lion's mane, uh, oyster mushrooms. And these are more medicinal and more nutritious as well. Um, so mushroom cultivation is really booming right now. And, and hopefully we see more and more diversity of mushrooms in our shops um, as this continues. And how far back in human history does our relationship with fungi go? Oh, very far back. I mean, as long as we've depended on plants for our nutrition, we've also depended on fungi. So you can, mm. that goes right back to um, long before humans were humans. But then there are lots of other examples of um, involvement of fungi in human history. There's a study that came out quite recently which found, uh, analyzed the tooth plaque enamel of some Neanderthal skeletons. And one of these Neanderthals had, a, had had a tooth abscess, judging by the state of its teeth. And this individual, not the others, had been eating an antibiotic-producing mold, which suggests the knowledge of its medicinal properties. And this mm-hmm. is tens of thousands of years before Alexander Fleming um, discovered penicillin. So, what, so fungi and use in medicine um, stretches a long way back as a, as a fire starter, as a way to hold fire, a kind of um, tinder and, and a coal-holding um, material, a way to transport fire. It's played a very important part as well. And, um, and as psychedelics in some cultures, in, in Middle America and Mesoamerica, the use of um, psilocybin-containing mushrooms as a sacrament, as a tool uh, of um, a cultural um, tool of um, experiencing all sorts of um, non-ordinary states of consciousness. A mushroom stretch back to three thousand years at least. So uh, there's a there's a long entanglement of human lives and fungal lives. Uh, it's not going to stop as well. Mm. What does the future look like for our relationship with fungi? There are all sorts of fascinating possibilities um, and fascinating realities happening really quite quickly. So some fungi are um, produce these medicinal compounds and a mycologist called Paul Stamets in America has found that antiviral compounds produced by certain species of fungi can help bees to overcome colony collapse disorder, which is a really major threat um, to all human life on the planet. And these bees, uh, if you feed these bees with these medicinal extracts from fungi, then they live uh, for a much, much longer time. And so that's one avenue, is a kind of medicinal wing of the medicinal mushroom story, but applied to to bees. Um, There are other aspects of medicinal fungi that will play really important roles as anti-cancer drugs, antivirals, um, antibiotics, and immune supporting compounds is a huge uh, and rapidly expanding field. Uh, and then, as building materials, you can use my you encourage mycelium to grow in damp um, wood, sawdust, sort of ground corn stalks, you know, agricultural waste, basically. Uh, you can create blocks or, or boards, a bit like um, wood composites. And these can be used in all sorts of places. IKEA are reenvisaging their. Um, the packaging as mycelial packaging at Dell, the computer company, already ship thousands of servers a year in mycelial packaging. Um, a leather-like material made from fungal mycelium 
is um, is picking up speed and sets to revolutionise set to revolutionise the fashion industry, and so these are really um, exciting possibilities and will help to disrupt some of the really polluting industries, uh, and and use renewable um, materials in their place, and so these are just a few of the ways that um, that humans are striking up new types of relationship with fungi. And on that, will will climate change have any impact on fungi? Absolutely, yes. So the, there'll be a, a number of fungi which are um, forced into very difficult situations because of climate change and the range shifts of host species, say they're host plant species. Um, some will adapt, some won't. And um, for example, you know, as plants are forced to move up or down latitudes because of climate change, climate change, um, their fungal partners will will either um, be able to make that journey with them or not if the plants aren't able to move themselves. Um, lots of fungi will thrive in disturbed environments. So during the last um, major extinction, uh, which the one that wiped out the dinosaurs when an asteroid hit uh, modern-day Mexico, um, the blankets of ash that covered the planet killed off a lot of the forests. And so this global compost heap uh, was a fine breeding ground mm. for all these decomposing fungi who had a kind of a field day, um, field uh, per- period, when uh, there was just a huge amount to decompose. So decomposers thrive in this kind of disturbed environment. Some fungi will not thrive in that kind of disturbed environment. So there are many ways to be a fungus and many ways for fungi to respond to um, to global heating and uh, environmental uh, breakdown. So will fungi outlive us? Well, I would say almost certainly. And do you ever see that there could be a world without fungi? Um, it would not be recognisable to us, certainly. So mm. if fungi, if you wound back, the, if you look back in the history of life, um, and imagined replaying the tape of the history of life without fungi as part of that story, there would be life, but it would be um, totally unrecognisable, and we certainly wouldn't be here. And um, so moving forwards, it's very hard to imagine a world without fungi either. And for you, what would you say is so fascinating about fungi? Why have you chosen them to, to focus on? There are so many reasons. <laughs> um, I find that thinking about fungi makes the world look different. Um, that these organisms have the power to change the way that we think and feel and imagine. Um, for example, when you realise that that underground between plants, there are these uh, large networks through which all sorts of um, nutrients and materials, water and signals are passing, um, when you realise that uh, the history of life is a history of uh, symbioses in which fungi have played major roles, um, then things start to look different. The out, the, when I walk around outside, I experience it differently, knowing that this is going on. So I found this very fascinating, and also fascinating because it helps me to understand uh, these seething entangled networks, which really is how life works. So when you think about ecology, uh, which is the relationships that form between organisms and their environments and organisms and other organisms, these fungal networks 
form literal, enduring, persistent connections between organisms. And so they embody this basic principle of ecology. And so I find them uh, really helpful organisms just to keep my attention there, keep my attention on the relationships between things um, and on the interconnectedness of these life forms. And so it, um, it helps me to um, keep the picture large and to avoid uh, tunneling too rapidly into um, narrow and reductive stories. Mm. And fungi can actually help trees communicate between each other, is that right? Yes. So um, these networks that form, so the, the fungi that helped plants and the ancestors of plants out of the water 500 million years or so ago, and these plants, um, these fungi don't just form relationships with one plant, they're promiscuous. And so they can form uh, relationships with more than one plant. And plants are also promiscuous and can form relationships with more than one type of fungus. And the result is these uh, overlapping shared fungal networks, shared between plants. And as well as nutrients, which can pass through these networks, um, there have been very good studies that show that you can have signaling um, compounds passing between these between these plants. If you have two plants grown um, next to each other and they're either allowed to share a fungal network or they're not allowed to share a fungal network and you expose one of those plants to aphids, which are a pest, um, and you don't expose uh, the other plant to aphids, then the plants that share a fungal network, um, then the, the second plant, if they share a fungal network, will upregulate its defensive responses, although it has not itself experienced the aphid attack which indicates that somehow through the network, information is passing. Exactly in what form this information is passing, we're not yet sure, uh, but it's very clear that it does take place. That's amazing. So if I'm, you know, if I've, I think lots of us have been taken to gardening more recently than, than we might have done in the past. Should we be considering the fungal composition of, you know, our soil, of, of my houseplants? Well, I mean, I personally find it helpful to do so. And um, in reality, in one's garden, there's probably, um, most people probably aren't uh, applying a huge number of uh, chemicals um, and um, inorganic uh, products, um, which would potentially disrupt the fungi. If you're going to spray your garden with fungicide, of course, that would uh, really interfere with these symbiotic relationships that the plants need to survive. And that would be, um, if you're spraying your garden with fungicide and then you need to find out about these symbiotic fungi, then maybe it would be helpful. Uh, maybe you might choose to not spray the fungicide on your plants and that could be really make a difference. But I think probably for, for, for many people who are gardening um, who aren't using these um, methods, um, there's probably not much that you would do differently apart from really attend to the health of the soil and the compost for example is really good for these relationships rather than chemical inorganic fertilizers um, but just knowing that these plants that you can see growing in front of you are growing um, out of this relationship that what you see is the outcome of a hundreds of millions of years old relationship that these plants are in fact algae which have evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. And this is a really um, big thought for me, at least. Mm. Do you have a favourite species? Oh, no, I'm terrible at favourites, but it depends on the day of the week and the weather. <laughs> <laughs> um, today, I'd say maitake, which are really beautiful, um, or hen of the woods, as they're sometimes known. They're very uh, delicious mushrooms that are also 
quite medicinal. Mm. And so when I'm next out on a walk, in which ways can I look, what can I look for in order to appreciate the, the fungi that maybe I can't see? So you can look for mushrooms. That's one thing you can um, easily do. And looking for mushrooms is, is something you sort of open your senses to. You know, sometimes you can just see them growing, but if you're really looking for them, you can you know, walk slowly, you can slightly blur your eyes to give you a bigger field of view. There are a few ways to, people, mushroom hunters describe uh, getting their eyes on. You know, I haven't got my eyes on yet, so I missed that. You know? mm. And so, so it's quite fun to, um, to try and drop into that state. Um, and apart from mushrooms, there's lichens. Lichens are, are very common, and uh, most of the time we pass over them without giving them a thought. But um, if you see lichens growing, then, and, and even better, if you look at lichens with a small hand lens, mm. they become a world, total like continents on an unfamiliar atlas, and it's astonishing to get lost in their, uh, their forms and colours. So that's one way. Um, anytime you see a plant, you know, you, you're, 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 you're seeing this, um, the outcome of this fungal association. Um, rotting, anything decomposing, rotting logs, um, any, when you see fallen autumn leaves and you lift them up and you see where they're becoming soil, that uh, frothing wilderness of decomposition and microbial activity. Um, so there are all these different ways that we can uh, learn to notice fungi. And if there's any life lessons that we can take from fungi, what would you say they would be? Our fungi raise a lot of questions. Um, so one question that they raise is to do with individuality. We're used to thinking of ourselves as neatly bounded individuals. And fungi can make questions of some of the categories that we use to organize our lives. Uh, a given fungal um, network, a given piece of a given mycelial network, you can take any fragment of that and it will turn into an entirely new mycelial network um, and you can do that potentially forever so under the right conditions you can think about these fungi as uh, immortal but these mm -hmm. fungal networks can also fuse with other fungal networks to make larger fungal networks and so where's one start and where does one stop and where does when you have a fungus living inside a um, an insect and changing its behavior which they do sometimes then you have this astonishing fusion of a fungus with an animal and behaving in a new a new kind of way. And so lichens, well, you know, these are composite organisms expressing themselves in ways that they would not do if they were growing alone. Um, like the chemical elements of hydrogen and oxygen, which come together to make water, uh, which is completely unlike uh, hydrogen or oxygen, both of them ex explosive gases. Um, lichens come together to form these organisms which are completely unlike their um, constituent members. So these... Fungi playing games with individuality that really uh, challenge us to think about how it is that we impose our categories and concepts on the world. That was biologist Merlin Sheldrake talking about the immeasurable importance of fungi. The October issue of BBC Science Focus magazine reveals how to keep your mind healthy in a world of uncertainty. We speak to the world's first slime mould astrophysicist and take a closer look at the news of signs of life in the clouds of Venus. Of course, there are loads more science stories inside and available on sciencefocus.com. If you like what you've just listened to, then please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. 
We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.